There isn't a different kind of acting for comedy than there is for drama. It actually requires all the best skills you can collect however you collect them as an actor, and you need to ignite them all at once and stay as grounded as you possibly can so that you can scale up in terms of characterization and animation and emotion and still be believable. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 73. I'm Elise Sievert. And I'm Leslie Shannon. Today, we are talking to comedian and coach Gunnar Todd Robichar. We discuss the actor's comedy studio that he owns and teaches, film and TV script analysis, and being, being dangerous, dangerous in comedy. comedy. Talk about funny things. <laughs> Oh, I thought that was live. Um, or was it, was that going out live? Mm. I mean, sure, I mean, politics yeah. do slip in our show. It slips well, in mean, a lot because of everything of that's been going on. Time. But. I mean, well, how can you live in the world and not talk about them at all? I mean, you can, but I feel like it's not really living in the world. Well, right. I mean, life is political. I mean, you're either checked out or you have an opinion, and then if those opinions are going to either change or become reality, if they're not reality, you it has to be done through legislation, yeah. which mm-hmm. means politics. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, and one of the great ways, I think, to participate in politics is through through comedy because people listen. They don't feel like they're being preached to when you're laughing about it. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> I know a few things. <laughs> what was your way into comedy? Like, was it something you knew, like, from the get-go when you were young, or is it something you discovered, like, had a moment... Uh, well, I grew up in a funny family, so that was my personal starting point was just uh, I knew I could earn a seat at the adult table instead of the kids' table if I could make people laugh. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was like a rite of passage in my family, so yeah. different people have different experiences growing up. Uh, but yeah, my whole family was hilarious is hilariously funny and um growing up my mom was the oldest of six kids so my aunts and uncles were all very young and my cousins are all younger than me so just i grew up with a fun loving family who liked to spend time together and we definitely did a good job of making each other laugh (laughs) that's great that's really great and when when did you start writing like what was that like when were you like i need to write this stuff down i'm really funny i need to write it down so writing proper also started early because I was also good with language in English uh, going to school. So that was those were always my strong skill sets. And uh, I thought at a certain point that I was going to be a journalist. So I actually studied communications with a, a, a specifying in journalism when I was in college. And I wrote on my high school paper. I was the... Um, opinion editor in high school and then on my college paper I was the entertainment editor and that was a weird segue (laughs) right Uh, into becoming a comedy writer and and a performer so I when I was about 20 or so I went to a groundlings show and then that's the long story short. I was so you were smitten. like, that's what I, I was do. like. Yep, yeah. no more journalism, <laughs> no more serious guy. That was all too serious. <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, you know, the the current people that, that I saw at the time were just so gifted and so magical that I, I mean, I really was truly captivated. And it was that was about thirty years ago for me. So you know, improv 
and sketch that wasn't so it wasn't much a as house. big like, like people didn't really know what it was that is correct you know? i mean you probably had to live in you know chicago or los angeles and even not new york so much i mean when you go back to the origins of improv and sketch work it it's foundation really is in los angeles and chicago uh-huh. chicago yeah. primarily chicago i don't primarily. want anybody yeah. to get <laughs> Don't get the wrong. I know idea. what's going on, <laughs> right? It started with Nichols and May, and you know so many others back in Chicago and Viola Spolin, et cetera. And then here it was all about the Growlings. So I, I, I saw a Growling show, and it just it spun my head around, and I actually stopped going to college the next day. I auditioned what? for the Growlings, and I've never looked back. Oh my That's gosh! Great. What a defining moment to like feel so confident about something. That yeah. you were just like, yeah. How old were you? As uh, twenty, I think. It was I feel like that's the only time in your life where you ever feel that confident about anything. <laughs> you might be quite right about that because I don't know that I've ever felt that way since. Yeah. But there was one day back in whatever that year was where I went, uh huh, uh-huh. I'm sold. Yeah, that's awesome. They're though. making magic, and I want to. Yeah, I'd never seen anything that magical. Um, Although my family was large and funny and wonderful, as I said, nobody was in the arts or in the performing arts, so I didn't have much exposure to that Mm -hmm. growing up. And so, yeah, my venturing up to L.A. uh, from Orange County where I was living when I was going to college, that was my first kind of, you know, adult experience going, you know, what's what's out there in the big bad world in the the great big city? And how did it feel when you started? When you, like, was was there any fear with it or was it like this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing? Yes, really good questions. I was terrified uh, <laughs> because I wasn't a performer and you know you've got you know a lot of kids are theater kids growing up and so they get used to it whatever. Uh, I thought I was going to be this really serious journalist maybe slash photojournalist <laughs> you know and I, I literally thought I would be traveling all over the world and like go to war zones yeah and you know that's a really big flip. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's truly how I envisioned my life, dead serious. And I was on track to do it. And then, so was I scared? I was because I didn't really know what I was doing. And it was such a big decision to make and such a big turnaround. And uh, it really landed when I had to get myself, you know, to the groundlings for the audition. Um, you know, back then it was really, I mean, they called it an audition, but it was really just to kind of make sure I think that you're... Uh, normal person yeah but you're not a crazy right but it was my first not a crazy but it was my first audition of any kind yeah uh, for anything and you didn't know what to expect did you I didn't know what to expect I didn't really I mean I knew what the word meant in the literal sense but I'd had no relationship or association to it so I had to drive around the block several times before I could even park the car that's how scared I was my heart was beating in my chest like a bunny I uh, I finally parked and got in, and I, I mean, I, I think I was just pale and sweating. I was so nervous. It was crazy. And the person who ran my audition is Heather Morgan, who's a fairly well-known actor and comedian and writer, um, and now a very good friend of mine after all of these years. Uh, and she... I'm certain does not remember (laughs) that I was in the audition (laughs) class. Um, 
So shout out to Heather if you listen to this. <laughs> What's uh, up, Heather? I love her. What up? Uh, but she was the one who ran my auditions, and I was, and you know, they run you through basic stuff. It's like sit in a circle, you know, do one word story. You know, they're really basic um, starter improv games. And I, when we sat in the circle, my hands were shaking so badly, I literally had to sit on them because I could not stop from visibly shaking. So that's how scared that's I was a, yeah. when I started. Yeah. Well, yeah. So how did you approach that audition, like not having any knowledge about improv, those games? Did they, they just like explain it to you on the spot and that's literally like the first time you'd ever played them? Yes. Oh, everything about that makes me want to throw up. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll add to this, you know, since we're going back to a whole different era of improv and sketch training, it's much more common now and much more any any actor in town might have some exposure to it, et cetera, right? So everybody who was there was really experienced. So, you know, it, now I think it's not that uncommon for anybody to just kind of jump in and take an improv class. Mm -hmm. Back then you kind of didn't really do it unless you really wanted to already had a ton of acting training and you wanted to specialize and refine and they also didn't take everybody. Um, it, it was terrifying and everybody else that I was with looked really confident is my point yeah so I, yeah. it was especially intimidating that, I don't think it would be the same as if any of us jumped in and auditioned for an improv class now yeah. right I also think some people have some sense you know just like I said of that word at this point you know what back in the yeah. 80s when I was doing it it was like or like, when I started yeah, yeah like what is this so how did you so I'm assuming that you got in um, to Groundlings. I did. What if I said no? <laughs> I mean, you don't know. Maybe it then took you a couple of years to get in. I don't know. This could be a like rags to riches story. No, I, I went through and it ended up being some of the best uh, memories of my life. And, it, it, you know, I have a lifelong relationship with the Groundlings. I've, they do master class uh, fundraiser event every September for their diversity program. And uh, I taught there last week and I'm teaching there again on Monday. So it's full circle. come full circle that I guest teach for them, uh, you know, for their annual masterclass event. So that's something that I'm very proud of and very excited about. That's awesome, so, though. All the way from that kid who was like, ah, I'm freaking <laughs> out. I'm wigging out here. I'm totally wigging out to I'm teaching a masterclass. How did you get over um, the nervousness? Did you find that once you had auditioned that you didn't, you weren't nervous in the same way or did it take you some time? Because I'm asking this specifically because I remember when I went to acting school and it was my first improv class that I took, that was the class that made me want to pee my pants the most out of all the classes. I love improv now and it still will make me like excited, nervous. But at the time when I was in acting classes, I remember like I like dreaded going to the class, not because I didn't enjoy it once I was there, but it, just the anticipation of having to not have lines that I was already knew or had given to me to do. So how long did it take you before you didn't feel so nervous? First class. Wow. You're so much cooler than me. Um, uh, well, <laughs> there's, but there's different reasons why, uh, you know, it's, uh, all of my teachers, were kind and I'm still in touch with a lot of them. Um, my, my first teacher was Lisa Kudrow. 
So shut the front <laughs> door. I was lucky Rude. that I, you know, because she didn't teach very long there because, ah. uh, right, you know, her <laughs> career broke open. I mean, she did several other things before Friends, but obviously once Friends hit, that was it. She wasn't yeah, teaching classes done. anymore. So there was a small window of people who got her as a teacher. Um, she was very kind and very generous. And, um, you know, I think really honored that, you know, after the audition, you go into your class, it was a level one class. It was a basic class. So slow and steady won the race. But it wasn't just Lisa. I had a whole slew of teachers. And by the way, for anybody listening who needs inspiration, I was told to repeat level one. And then I did. And then I took level two. And then I had to repeat level two. And then I went through three and four, but Lisa had to repeat level two uh, levels as well. And s many of my other teachers did. So once I got in there and started working it out, I, I was drawn to it. There, I just, once I saw that it was even a thing, there was no keeping me away. So I think also the reason I settled into it really quickly is because I had a real calling to be there and it just was undeniable. It was crazy how quickly I upturned all the plans that I had otherwise for my life and did that. So I just kind of breathed into it once I got there. But I can never talk about it without crediting all of my teachers. Heather ended up being one in just on and on. Tim Bagley, Karen Mariyama, anybody who's gone through Groundlings, some of these people are still teaching there. And they know what incredible people and incredible teachers they are. And I'm extremely grateful to them. And that's where I actually got my mentors. Sorry if I'm going on a tear. but No, you're not. Cynthia Sigetti, who's no longer with us anymore, uh, was one of the first people to run the school at the Groundlings. Because, you know, back in the 70s, like, they were just doing stuff in a garage, <laughs> right? Then they got the theater, et cetera. Um, but Cynthia was one of the original company members along with Phyllis Katz. And a lot of people know who Phyllis is. Uh, in town. Um, she is still uh, with us and in teaching, you know, she's a genius song improv teacher. She's on the board mm -hmm. of the Groundlings currently. But anyway, both of them mentored me to not only perform and write, but Cynthia in particular also taught me how to teach. And she ingrained a deep philosophy on what it means to be an arts teacher. And so I have to credit her for that too. So just once I found my place, every everything fell in place, and a lot of people took really good care of me. So, that how made do you think scary. improv helps new writers? Um, also a great question because <laughs> I actually think it, you know it definitely helps performers, but you know really the definition of improv is it's playwriting on your feet. So, and I know it mm -hmm. right. It happens ultimately simultaneously, right. but you're really writing a millisecond before you're acting. Mm -hmm. it, Again, it, we all get it. It blends together. But I think it helps writers the most because you're practicing scene structure constantly. And so, you know, you're not writing it out with your hand or typing it on a computer. Um, you know, it's the verbal. But, well, there's a tons I could say about writing. But, like, step one is to just master basic scene structure, beginning, middle, and end with an arc and conflict uh, driven by a characterization and point of view. So, you know, that's the simplest way to define a well-written scene. And when you're improvising, you're just doing that over and over and over and over and over and getting instant feedback. And uh, I think, you know, if it's like anything else, 
Um, not all teachers are the same. Not all programs are the same. So if you've got a good, good instruction in a, a good training facility and there's an artistic direction, an artistic vision around that facility, then improv is some of the best training for writers, I think. How do you think that having such an amazing experience with your teachers dictates how you teach? I'll, uh, oh my gosh, that's, I love the way you worded that uh, because I think all of them gave me something that I still use to this day, whether it's um, a way into the work, whether it's um, a way to talk to people, a way to, Cynthia specifically, um, we would have long talks after class and she would quiz me and she would say, why do you think I said that to that person versus why I said that to that person? And she would make me critically think through and answer why somebody maybe got screamed at and somebody got praised for a similar thing, just for example. And, you know, and the answers varied, but it was basically she, what she was training me to do was talk to people on their own terms. And I, you know, I think that's a, a large component of what good instruction of any kind is. And um, uh, that's a very specific thing I got from one of my teachers and mentors. Um, so they're kind of all alive whenever I <laughs> teach, yeah. I think. And what I can also add is that they definitely inspired me. Every kindness, every compliment, or even every hard note that somebody got to me, I was watching someone help other people realize their dreams. And I just thought that was freaking cool. Mm -hmm. And then as much as I wanted to be an improviser when I started, I, that quickly caught fire that I wanted to teach too. I asked when I was way too young. I was very precocious because I've been teaching for 25 years. Um, so I started when I was 25. And yeah. I asked Cynthia if she would train me to be a teacher. teacher and I thought she'd say no. And she said, I thought you'd never ask. Oh, that's so <laughs> She sweet. said, what took you so long? Oh, Aww. that like literally makes me want to cry. That's amazing. But I mean, I, I just think it's really important to um, teachers really do shape, like whether it is in, you know, primary school or, um, you know, high school or college, wherever, whatever your training is, teachers are so important, or even as actors, when you're taking acting classes, like there are people who can have, you know, you can take a class, but just because you're taking a class doesn't mean it's the right class. Um, mm -hmm. And having really good teachers is makes all the difference. Well, in the especially world. in this town, there's are there a few schools are there a few everywhere. acting schools? <laughs> there <laughs> are um, there are acting teachers who've never had an acting class, and it blows me away. I uh, didn't know that. Actors, you know, There's... here's my actual advice or tips if this helps anyone to hear. You need to really read teacher bios really carefully because no one's going to hold up a big neon sign and say, well, I've never really trained as an actor. No one's going to do that. Uh, but there are a lot of ways to kind of hide or subdue that fact and lead with other things that sound really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but, yes, there are prominent well-known teachers in acting schools. I won't name names. Um, but uh, honestly, read the bios because a couple of things. One is some have never acted in anything and never had acting training. They're 
it's working because maybe they came from another part of the industry. So I'm not saying they don't have knowledge either, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how you're going to help an actor become the best actor they can be when you've never walked in their shoes. Mm -hmm. That I think is, it's too far afield Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And then there are other acting teachers and I think maybe you and anybody listening can relate is there's some teachers who teaching was a fallback for position for them. And I say that, you know, I say that with care because that can be okay mm-hmm. if your ego is worked out. Mm-hmm. But what I tell people, you know, when they come into my studio for an audit or they want a one-on-one meeting to meet me to see if they want to train with me and study with me, one of the things that I always tell them is that this was not a fallback position for me. I learned how to do several things simultaneously and teaching is one of them because I asked to be trained. It was a direct request from me to someone I loved very much and admired. And that is different than going, I don't, I guess other things aren't working out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I'm going to do this for money or whatever, you know? You know, and there are some, there, and I want to just insert, there are some people who maybe it was the second choice and they're still great teachers and that is okay. But there are also some people who, if you read between the lines, what they put on their own websites, you can feel the toxicity. Yeah. And (laughs) the world is full of that enough already. We don't need to subject ourselves to it like on a daily basis. No, they don't. A lot of times my meetings with new actors, new actors to me, are like aftercare meetings because they've been shell-shocked by somebody else. So, you know, I'm not saying this uh, as a, from any kind of place of competitiveness with other people, but I find myself meeting people and my meeting with them is to try to make them feel better because of an experience they've had at another training facility here. Mm-hmm. And it's usually not from out of town. It's usually really from here. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like a, like a, uh, Picking a therapist. <laughs> it is. It is therapy. I feel like picking an acting teacher is pretty similar. You know, you yeah. c- there's a lot of trust and mm-hmm. you have to be vulnerable and you have to. There's also, I think, because there's these big dreams behind a lot of people. And so much hope. Um, and people take advantage of that. Both of those things. They do. And then some people... Um, some people, you know, never overcome damage that was done to them when mm-hmm. they were younger. And they think um, they, ge- uh, uh, and I've experienced some of these people myself, they genuinely don't know <laughs> that it's not supposed to be a mind game. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but they don't. You're yeah, nodding. I, I get it. Yeah, no. Some and, people really think that. Then, then you could observe that from a distance and think that's you know you're 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 screwing with somebody's psyche. You're you're messing with them, and surely you must know better. Some people do. Some people don't even know better. Mm-hmm. I try to look at life like through the filter of giving everybody the benefit of the doubt is that they're doing the best that they can be doing in any given moment. And sometimes that's comforting, and sometimes it's a little terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> for like, sure. Is that really the best you could be doing? Because I think it's awful. <laughs> I don't know how I ended up at that well, thought, but but yeah. I mean, it's the same idea of you know, no one thinks they're the villain, kind of thing. Yeah, it's that. So approaching like from an acting standpoint, you don't ever want to 
I mean, unless you're like really doing this dramatized comedic playing of a character, a caricature, um, then you don't really want to play that kind of thing up because that's not being truthful. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, it, it depends on the circumstances. Some comedy is really funny when you do that because you're not supposed to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so when did you start your studio? Actors Comedy Studio has been alive for, uh, it'll be a decade in January. Congrats. Oh, wow, congratulations. Thanks. That's exciting. Yeah. It's hard to keep brick and mortar places open in general. Thank you for that. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it's also a joy. So, you know, Absolutely. I have a business partner, Lauren Bertoni. She's uh, one of the youngest certified studio teachers in the United States of America. She's actually, I talked to her before I came up here to chat with you. She's currently on a set right now. She's working on a new show, uh, comedy for Netflix called The Big Show Show. It's um, it's a kid's show and it's got, uh, it features a wrestler from the WWE. Sorry, I'm blanking on his name right now. But anyway, that's what she does. She just works on sets all the time. So I own the business with her. And, you know, we opened it as a counterpoint to how I grew up because I am an improviser and an experienced one and a sketch artist. And, um, you know, also spending my adult life here, I, you know, I knew there were other things that I needed to do to get ahead in the business. Um, like getting, developing a relationship with the camera. And then since I was already a writer, script analysis was pretty easy for me. So I also got really good at that really quickly. Uh, and then also just because we have to wear multiple hats to get by, I made money as an actor, but not always, not every year. You're not the same <laughs> what? <amount>. what? That's <laughs> true. I thought everyone once you, you know, once you said working, you wanted to, yeah, uh, you're automatically those a millionaire. Come in. Yeah, so just start breaking in. I also worked in casting for a while. And I mentioned that because that's what really is under the hood of our school, of Actors Comedy Studio, is I, I taught improv for so long and it was so, that's where I started teaching and it was so fulfilling and I had so much fun. Um, I left LA for just a little bit to go work in a writing job in San Francisco, but it was right when the dot-com whole thing busted. So there was a lot of uh, venture capital, but not real companies up there. <laughs> I worked for one of those. I still feel like Fun. it's that way up there. Like, <laughs> it, like all the startups and the apps. And I'm like, are yeah. these real companies? So, Where, who's giving them money? <laughs> I don't know, but there was a lot. Yeah. I mean, I worked in a schmancy building in a schmancy office. <laughs> and I was like, nobody's really doing anything You're here. like, this is not going to go well. You're like, the overhead is way too much for The day what? I started. Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why? Because we were all sitting in $1,500 chairs. Yeah, so I was like, and nobody knew what their job was. So <laughs> trust me when I tell you, I the day one, I thought this isn't going to end well. It didn't. So when that went down, I came back home and uh, I was a little bit lost. That's actually when I started getting into casting. And, um, you know, I just asked friends. I was like, here I am. Things went upside down for a little bit. Take care of me. Help me. That's what friends are for. Yes. So <laughs> I, Ask them for that, guys. Please. I started working in casting, um, you know, to have money coming in. And, uh, you know, it gave me a period of time, about a year, where I was thinking, what do I want to do? And I actually thought about staying in casting because I actually like it. Um, it was a lot of commercial casting, but then I also, um, just because a friend had asked, uh, cast a couple of uh, network pilots. And I was like, well, this is 
kind of a cool aspect of this whole thing too. And I was learning other things. And uh, around that time, a friend of mine called me and said, I have a friend who owns an acting studio and he teaches uh, drama primarily, but he wants to open a comedy section, but he's not so much a comedy teacher. Do you want to, are you interested in meeting? So we met, I was the only one that was interviewed and I opened a comedy department instantly for somebody else at another studio. And I stayed there for uh, nine years uh, until I outgrew it. And then, open actress comedy studio so all of those dots connect to um our school being a counterpoint to the improv and sketch uh, schools because i thought well i don't need to add more to that and i'm certainly not going to be able to compete with groundlings and ucb and second city and they've they've got it covered there's plenty right, right. here but there wasn't enough places where um a real trained comedian was teaching any actor how to do comedy on camera with the script written by somebody else. Going back to your original question about does improv help comedy writers, it absolutely does. And there's a an ease and a freedom or maybe tension, terror, all of the above when you have to walk out on a stage and create the scene <laughs> by yourself. But you learn and that's mm-hmm. but that's a different thing. It's a different skill. It's a different skill set yeah. entirely. And that's what I was saying earlier. When I was younger I learned how I, I got myself into other classes and commercial classes and I did a lot of commercials when I was younger and on camera classes and I rounded it out. But when I worked in casting I realized not everybody else was getting that memo mm-hmm. and a lot of really brilliant talented people people who had taught me who I said how much I loved and peers of mine who had come up with me I was now in a position to call them into the room and some of them were thriving and some of them were like crashing badly because they they truly just didn't know the value of audition technique training and on-camera training. On-camera, knowing how to use your camera, your frame. Yeah, Yeah, because with, I mean, anything from being on a stage to coming to a camera is very different, but I feel like specifically comedy because you have to figure out when is it okay to be over the top and when is it not. And yeah, that's a very niche thing. Well, and the phrase, that phrase and phrases like it, over the top, is this too bit? That's literally exactly what I take on as a comedy teacher. Because that's and, what casting directors say all the time, I think. You know, it's no. No? Actually, okay. it's what actors say oh, all the time. Interesting. And this is where I feel like this is where I thrive as a teacher. And, you know, this is this is my wheelhouse and my specialty is debunking myths and getting away from conceptualizations of what it is to act comedy specifically to the camera. Because casting directors, generally speaking, want more from actors when it comes to comedy. And the default setting for most actors is whatever I do, I don't want to do too much. I don't want to go too big (laughs) and they're underplaying the full value and potential Mm -hmm. of the material. So casting and producers are kind of bored to tell you the truth. They're waiting for someone to come in who's nailing it and not extraordinary, not special. I think most actors from observation, not just, you know, a, a general thought in my head from watching what people any any given actor can do when they're given permission and guidance and structure i have seen they can do infinitely better and be more impressive 
when meeting a stranger, mm-hmm. when going to an agent, manager, casting director, or producer and presenting themselves, when they know what the line is when the camera's pointed at them. Mm. Anybody can go huge if it's an improv stage and it's just like, you know, a heyday, like, you know, do do whatever, play to the rafters, play to the bleachers. But when it comes to camera, people don't know how to navigate the line. And it's not production and casting directors who are saying, I'm afraid you'll go too big. It's actors already doing it to themselves. So a lot of times casting and producers don't get to see what your upper limits are. And it's very scary because auditioning, I I would say included in this conversation, I have identified auditioning as its own genre of acting from stem to stern. And what we do at our school is, you know, include all of the details, Mm -hmm. meaning the imagination you need, imagination work you need to do to create a fourth wall environment to specifically working with the camera and the framing of your camera to your advantage. And um, I don't actually hear a lot of acting teachers, comedy, drama or otherwise talking about you. This town, you hear audition technique training all the time, all over the place. But no one really unpacks that as you need to have a relationship to the camera that works to your advantage. I don't hear that conversation enough, and I'm aggressively trying to put it into play literally all over the town. And I definitely do it at my school because there are things that you can do literally just sitting in a chair or standing on a mark that play better to the lens of a camera or worse to the lens of a camera. And people are not being trained well for that. And Mm -hmm. we take that on Mm -hmm. in school, working on your acting foundation and then working on just the sheer comedy of it all simultaneously. So a lot happens in any one. I say there's a couple, a couple things, two, three there that you're, you're looking at. Do you feel like actors get that by practicing and watching themselves? Because I know that's what's changed my, my work on camera is being in practice groups every week and watching it back and then under it's like understanding like where my eyes are going or where like you can start to manipulate things with the the pictures of the frame yes yeah absolutely no i love that yeah. this makes me very ex- i i just love talking about this cuz it makes me very excited you know it's uh, the technical aspects of auditioning and working with the camera absolutely need practice and reinforcement. Um, Working with pages, cold reading skill is an extremely important skill. People broadly know what it means, but they don't really take it to heart. That is a skill that will save an actor's life and make you look more or less impressive that has nothing to do with your talent or Mm. overall acting training. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's just being graceful with the pages and getting words if you need them, but not getting sucked into the script. If you don't need to look, that's a thing to practice literally all by itself. Mm-hmm. That's one component of audition technique mm-hmm. that is even aside from your performance and your choices and your training in that regard. Yeah. So a lot more goes into it than I think people realize. And not that many people audition well. And if actors really knew what the percentage was, like we know that there's a lot of actors and thousands of people get called in and you know we can overwhelm ourselves with these numbers, but the number of people who love auditioning because they're technically great at it, yeah, is few. Yeah, and when you and you can train yourself to be in that club, and that's one of the things that still excites me about a teacher about teaching. And then when you combine with 
helping people find the scaling and projection are the words that I use for what you brought up earlier. I like those words (laughs) way better than mine. And and a lot of it goes to vocal control and your voice performance. So I also talk about, you know, where your voice is coming from in your body and uh, how you're using your voice to your advantage or not while you're auditioning. So look, I'll get into my diaphragm right now. I'm going to go all the way And then all of a sudden my (laughs) voice, yeah. I play with my voice all the time because I'm goofy. Uh, But <laughs> to show my students an example of the power that you have when you get into your core and work from your middle. So all of those things collectively, I know it kind of sounds like I'm jumping no, all over the no, map. No, no, it doesn't okay. at all. Because collectively, because collectively I'm not jumping all over the map, <laughs> um, there isn't a different kind of acting for comedy than there is for drama. It actually requires all the best skills you can collect however you collect them as an actor And you need to ignite them all at once and stay as grounded as you possibly can so that you can scale up in terms of characterization and animation and emotion and still be believable. Because every word that my students, my actors say has to be the truth. And then once we get grounded in that and get their body grounded so they're not moving all over the frame like maniacs, uh, (laughs) then we build and build and build and build and build. And you see the real thrill that comes Mm. from performing comedy when it's not unwieldy, when it's controlled but growing and then it gets scary. It's then you're like an ice skater out on the ice about ready to do a triple Lutz and everybody's going, she going to land it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because there's lots of merit to just a good joke. Well, I'll, I'll chuckle. But, you know, scripted comedy is a dance. It's a tango. It's electric. And comedy needs to be a little bit dangerous or it's only okay. And it becomes dangerous when actors start taking chances. The, mm-hmm. And they get lost in the work. Um, anyway, for my money. I love how passionate you were about that because it like made me so excited. I'm like, I need to take a comedy class right now. <laughs> <laughs> is there one happening now? Because I really need it. I need to do it. At I'm 9 p.m. on a Friday. Push pause, right? She's exactly. Like, I'll, like, I'll be back. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I need it now. Sorry, guys. I got to go. You can do this, right? <laughs> to kind of jump a little bit, point of view of character, writing and acting in comedy is so important. And I feel like um, talking to Christine, who's our mutual friend, she's really, like when she talks about it, it's so specific and she knows exactly the point of view of this type of person. Do you want to elaborate on your viewpoints on that? I would love to. Great. (laughs) Great. Great. One of the things we work on at the studio, I'm working on a book. It's taken me a while to get it all together, but it's hopefully it's going to come out soon this year. Um, one of the things that we talk about are comedy archetypes, and I refer to them as the heroes of comedy. And what Christine is referring to is uh, finding the specificity in character and how your character experiences the world. And it the, uh, Educating ourselves that way does a couple of things simultaneously. It frees us from having any need of what the breakdown says. Um, Breakdowns, if people don't know, are written by either the casting offices or they're outsourced to breakdown services altogether. I know. I just found that out a few weeks ago. And I was like, no wonder we all hate the breakdowns. Like a company that has no connection 
to a project is writing the breakdowns. Well, if it's casting, to be clear, they're part of production, at least they're connected. Yeah. If it's outsourced, I just want to make sure all the listeners are clear. Yeah. So if it's outsourced to breakdown services, then it's not connected. But pointedly, and I say this a lot when I teach, because I guess teach around town, et cetera, but there's always people in the audience who don't know that. And I think it's just so important. So I say it a lot, but it's relevant because what actors need to unpack when they do script analysis is all in the pages, it's in the dialogue. And maybe there are uh, there's some help to be had in the breakdown. But a lot of times there's not. A lot of it's it, a lot of times it's a summary review of the scene, especially if it was written by maybe a casting assistant. No shade to casting. I love you. A lot of you are my friends, but I'm just <laughs> trying to help actors here. And if I help actors, it helps you. There we go. Um, <laughs> exactly. But you or you or me could read that scene and write the same summary. So actors need to know that that's not necessarily going to help them. So what one of the other things that we train our actors to do at our school is to look at the dialogue and figure out which of the heroes of comedy it is, which specific archetype. And we give specific uh, traits and characteristics as well as um, examples of other people who played that kind of archetype before. And it helps you unpack what is in a scene, any given scene that's given to you. And it also helps you type and brand yourself. So I think Generally speaking, all of us have a wheelhouse. You know, if you think of it as a pie chart and all the different personality types that you could play in front of a camera, we're not all cut out to play literally everything, at least in, you know, once the casting filter comes in. You know what I mean? Right. Because for TV and film, for the camera, we don't play too far afield from ourselves. Right. So what is your look? What is your vibe? What is your essence? And that narrows the field to what is your better odds for casting. Exactly. I never say never to anything. Anything can mm-hmm. happen. We'll mm-hmm. all go out on auditions for things that you're like, I don't even know why I'm here, but here I am. <laughs> so that happens. But your better odds are how most people see you and how you see yourself and how casting sees you. So if all those things can sync up, I think you're in better shape because you can start then feeding that into your headshots, uh, your real footage, and just the overall vision of where you belong when it comes to casting in front of the camera. So that's what Christine is referring to. And uh, I also find that this is, you know, I'm kind of yes-ending that. So that's just characterization and archetypes and in, in understanding your character's point of view, and which leads you hopefully to thinking differently mm-hmm. than yourself while mm-hmm. you're in character. That's when you know you're really acting on an advanced level, when the thoughts that surface in your head aren't the typical ones that you'd even have because you're right engrossed in seeing the world a different way. Um, but also... Um, a lot of actors haven't had great script analysis training. And, you know, I ask actors that question directly, especially when people come to me for career counseling, because I do headshot consultations. People just say, you know, I'm stuck. Can can we just talk and see where, what I'm missing? One of the questions I always ask directly is, um, have you ever had a script analysis class for TV and film? And almost 100% of the time, the answer is no. And if they have had script analysis, it was embedded in a theater program, which is still different from TV and film. And I will be specific on the reason why, because maybe this will help people. Uh, I know it's helped a lot of people before. uh, Because, well, I know this is an obvious statement, but theater and uh, film are obviously different genres. But 
more importantly, when younger people are taught script analysis in a theater program, it's often also parallel with classic known works, right? So stuff that's done, been done over and over. So in an attempt to innovate, you know, theater teachers are like saying, hey, let's do Shakespeare as mobsters, you know, things like that. So you're actually being asked to write, and this is really the point, to be a creative writer and a collaborator with the writing itself. And that is absolutely antithetical to script analysis for TV and film. When a writer sells a show to a network, I always tell everybody, think of it this way. They're selling a whole Bible, right? They're selling a treatment, maybe an outline of the season, and they're selling clear character bios. They know who the characters are. They're not saying like, oh, it's just a skeleton of the show. Let's cast it, and these brilliant actors will flesh it all out. I love brilliant actors. They're going to help, right? Mm -hmm. but they'll define it further. But they'll define it further. Right. But it's still defined. So it's an actor's job to see what the writer is asking for. And a lot of actors aren't able to do that. And this is leading to a bigger point. I see a lot of actors very specifically merging circumstance with character. Mm. When I ask a very simple question, what is she like? Uh, a lot of times the answer comes with the entire situation in tow. And it's an easy but very efficient diagnostic to know that an actor is not working at a competitive level. And even actors who think they are at a competitive level oftentimes aren't good at extracting their character from the circumstances or figuring out who the character is based on the way they're reacting in the scene, mm -hmm. right? Full-time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And making them real and humanized full-time all the time and then putting them back in the scene mm -hmm. to have that conversation. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it makes perfect yeah. sense, yeah. Right, because the answers are like, well, she's saying this because he did uh, this to it, because yeah. her boss did this, and it's there's so many bridges and becauses, and I'm like, well, are you developing the scene, or who's oh, so who's that person, though? And then the follow-up, and, you know, I don't do it to be snarky. I do it to help. So the follow-up question is, okay, so just when you say that opening line, how are you feeling? And then even then, I don't necessarily get words of emotion. Sometimes that doesn't even happen. It's, you know, well, she's like, she's, you know, she said blank, because you know, and they'll go straight to activity. So... I try, just try to make it really clear to actors, you, you know, and not just beginning actors, even working actors. Um, characterization requires adjectives and character traits, and we need to have a big vocabulary of those kinds of words. Mm. Words of emotion are their own kind of words. That's the definition. They're words of emotion, and they exist to express how we feel. We need to have a big palette of those words, and then we need, so that's incoming. Like, that's how I feel is based on what you've said or what you've done, and then I react to it. I have a feeling. That feeling drives our dialogue out. That motivates what we say, and what we say has the verbs. So those are our intentions or actions, and those are what we're doing. So we need to have a vo big vocabulary of intentions, which are um, uh, transitive verbs as well. So like those vocabularies need to be really fleshed out because rephrasing or paraphrasing the scene itself is not character development. I know that was a huge long speech. No, no that's totally me. fine. If you're you're <laughs> taking me back to school because I studied Adler Technique with Ron Burris. And so um, I like, that's all of what we did. Like 
so much of what we did was all the things that you're talking about. Like he would add, we would say words and he'd be like, but what does that mean? What does that word mean? And you're like, um, well, it means this. And he's like, but what does that mean? And you're like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> well, brain is going to explode. That's a little circular. I yeah. don't do that exactly. I hear you. <laughs> you know, well, because my ultimate point is um, script analysis for TV and film is unbelievably literal. It uh, kind of uh, pointedly doesn't need subtext. And I'm all for great acting. And I'm all for, you know, um, symbolism and metaphorical references. But the fact of the matter is TV and film doesn't need that very much. And your auditions don't need that very much. You need to exploit the immediate circumstances for comedy or drama. Mm -hmm. I make this example a lot. So you think of something like as epic as Game of Thrones, right? Is there symbolism there? Yeah. You know, that dragon could be a parallel for something else, right? Sure. But is there a lot of subtext? Not really, because if you think about it, like Cersei is sneering. Yeah. She looks evil. She yeah. walks evil. And then she says, I'd like to see your head on a plate. Mm. That's not subtext. Mm-mm. That's Mm-mm. exploiting the moment for mm-hmm. what it's worth. You know what I mean? Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's no. not Chekhov. There, well, and there's not a mystery. <laughs> there's no duplicity. Yeah. It's like she wants to kill someone. She looks like it. She walks like it. She acts like it. And she says something that implies that it. That says, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not subtext. Mm-hmm. It's just really good acting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and it applies to comedy too. Um, and then comedy in particular, actually, I should say, because uh, comedy is best when it's id exposed. It's super literal. And, I, and the reason I'm saying this is because I see a lot of people make misplays and misfires because they're looking this I do say in a kind of snarky way. So I just make myself laugh. Uh, you're looking for something that's both not there and uh, also not anything anyone else wants. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Comedy is hyper immediate. Yeah. We laugh because somebody is just naked and exposed and real. There aren't many secrets. Secrets are the purview of drama. Mm. It's true. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That makes a lot. Of- what are some of your favorite comedies? Um, TV shows or movies? Or uh, both. I mean, Anything. whatever comes to mind. Anything, past, present, whatever, uh, whatever. What comes to mind? You know, it's. I'm so. I see the merits in so many of them. It's. It's hard to pick favorites. Um, but I do have one, and it's okay. actually everybody loves Raymond. I think from stem to stern, the best written, acted television show in totality is Everybody Loves Raymond. And with a nod to so many others, it doesn't have any bad episodes. There are other shows that are near and dear to my heart, but a a lot of them, a lot of them Mm -hmm. have whole episodes or whole seasons or season arcs where I've checked out. Yeah. I love you, Mary Tyler Moore and Mary Tyler Moore show, but there was got weird at the end. (laughs) There's some episodes where I was like, what is the point of this? What's going on? Lou Grant's moving out of his house. Okay, fine. (laughs) It was not that interesting (laughs) of an episode. Um, All of Norman's Lear stuff. He's an idol of mine. He's brilliant. The Jeffersons, All in the Family, Good Times. All of those shows were great. I love all of those. Um, But... Everybody Loves Raymond was like a master class in the psychology of a dysfunctional family. And I think um, scripted comedy in particular is an examination of interpersonal relationships and uh, dysfunctional family dynamics. Mm. And Mm -hmm. to that end, uh, that show and Will and Grace did it really freaking well. And the only reason Will and Grace isn't number one, because I also love that show, is just because it had weird seasons and weird episodes Mm -hmm. that I didn't love. Yeah. Do you 
because sitcom is kind of went away for a little bit and now it's kind of coming back. But do you feel like, I feel like it hasn't come back as strong as it was like when Everybody Loves Raymond and Friends and Seinfeld was all, you know, like there was just all these different sitcoms. I feel like now it's like, like Big Bang Theory, it was it was fun. You know what I mean? But it wasn't like, oh, I love Big Bang Theory. I mean, some people do, but I guess that's not do. how. Yeah. That's I don't not, know. Yeah. What are your feelings on that? Yeah, well, it's what you're mentioning is interesting. Um, there was only a couple of time periods in all of television history. First of all, we forget. I never forget because I'm writing a book about it. Uh, <laughs> it's not that well, it's not that old, you know? So it's actually highly researchable and highly understandable. So if you're someone anywhere around any of our age, you're just like, oh, it's just always been there. I grew up with it. But it only started just before we right? came along. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It started in the 50s. 50s. Yeah. Right? Film started in the 20s, 1900s, but you know, it became mainstream in the 20s. TV became mainstream in the 50s. It's not that old. Um, oh, what was our point? I drifted off. Just sitcoms and like. Oh, so, you know, there was. There were a few years in that whole history, that was the point I was going to make, where there were several great sitcoms all at once. But mostly that's never been the case. Mm. So mm-hmm. um, I've thought a lot about your question. And uh, people bring that and, and things like that to me. And, you know, that's that's my answer. You know, a lot of times if you really look at what the ratings were on any given year in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, there was two, maybe three breakout comedies that, and there was a bunch of other stuff on, but that's been lost to the ether and it was garbage and it's forgotten mm. and it was there, but mm-hmm. nobody remembers. Mm-hmm. And same with dramas. You know, there's never, you know, 14 hit right dramas at one time (laughs) right so i think if you start with that we can go okay there was a period in the 90s you know uh where i think frazier friends oh how do we forget frazier everybody loves raymond they were all on at once for like a year or two and then they kind of went away so i think that's largely the time frame you're addressing um and then it's shifted to single cams right because there was a distinction that multi-cams fell out of camera uh, uh favor as much and then there was a period of time where it was like the office and 30 rock were kind of carrying the torch for half hour comedies but they didn't really go away i know attitudes changed i do know exactly what you're talking about mm-hmm. um but then you got all the way up to the big bang theory and then i'd say yeah but it's still on it was on for 15 years and it's yeah. one of the most profitable television shows that's ever been created in the history of television mm-hmm. so one has to say did it really go out of favor because it's still here now and no other show in television history has made as much money as, as that that show so so well there you go there you go. Learn something and, new. Well, and, and I think as we get older, our tastes change because there is, you know, I'll broaden the answer. Um, there's been all kinds of crazy good comedies on. And, you know, I, I think there is a distinction in taste between people who live in the cities and people who live in the middle of the country. Yeah. Um, and I like shows that are designed for both audience. I loved The Middle another Patricia Heaton show and it's uh, canceled now, but it was on for what, six or seven years. That show was genius. People either watched it or they didn't, but it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. It was half hour comedy. Um, Mike and Molly featured Melissa McCarthy. I, it's canceled now, but that was on for, I think five years. And 
it was brilliant. I used to yell at my students because no one really watched it. Uh, so I own it's a multicam, and uh, you know I was teaching a comedy class, and, and I was like, um, "You can watch Melissa McCarthy for free, right? And you're just not, not taking advantage. I don't care what you like. <laughs> you want to learn." From somebody who can knock a half-hour comedy script out of the ballpark, oh, she's watch so the great. show. Yeah. So, you know, I get what you're saying, but then when you go to the the list of single cams and and then the premium network shows, so like Veep, Silicon Valley, uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine has been a hit. I uh, love Brooklyn Nine Nine. Uh, the Goldbergs. So I think what happened, you know, because this list I could go on and on, and it's mm -hmm. quite huge. Then yeah. all the way up to recent hits like Barry and Fleabag, and on and on and on. It's just with the explosion of networks, comedies did take a dip. That's true. We'll just let it be that simple. But it wasn't like comedies went away and have started to come back, television itself reinvented itself mm -hmm. with multiple networks. And then comedy started to pop up also on other channels that they'd never been on before. Like um, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. That's said to be one of the longest running live action television shows in the history of television. I don't think it is quite yet. I'd have to look at the numbers. But that show's been on forever. Mm -hmm. It's like... 13 or 14 years, I think, now. And I think it's more. Is it more now? <laughs> okay, sorry. Wow. Apparently I'm behind on my seasons. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so that is, and what network? It just popped out of my head. FX. It's on FX, right? Mm -hmm. So FX never had a comedy until that show came on and they kept it. Right. Well, every other comedy I'd heard from someone else, every other comedy that they had, they like only left space for that one for whatever reason because they, they knew that it worked and that people watched it. And so other comedies they would give like a little bit of like a couple of seasons to, but they wouldn't give any more than that for some reason. Well, and it's smart. I mean, FX is, you know, an offshoot of Fo the Fox Network. And then, you know, lest we not mention The Simpsons, which is also still on. Oh, yeah. Which started with the Fox Network itself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, F Fox FX, they're good at going, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And they know how to build a legacy. Um, so, and then now we have the streaming services and Netflix is creating, you know, new comedies all the time. So, yes, there was an intersection of what comedy was doing to reinvent itself, but then all of a sudden TV re reinvented itself. And there's so many comedy jobs on television now, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And they got, I think, you know, sectioned off and um, labeled more specifically than they were because, you know, it, it, we can't have this discussion without talking about how many Nickelodeon and Disney shows th well, there are. And yes, those are, they're, yes. they're, 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 they feature kids as leads, but they're half hour comedies. Yeah, they're, sitco yeah, they're, they're sitcoms. sitcoms. And yeah. yeah, yeah, they are sitcoms. Huh, I didn't even think about that. And so then when you start really adding these up, their jobs for actors of every age, type, look, ethnicity, all over the place. Mm -hmm. And some of the streaming comedies are genius. Um, you know, one day at a time, a normal near show got, you know, reimagined for Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's uh, Netflix also has uh, Mr. Iglesias, I believe. So that's another half hour comedy uh, multicam. So now Netflix has shows in, you know, and I think that. That really answers to your point is there's, you know, whatever I've observed or what I might think about it. But then there's the reality that it's not just the traditional networks that are making family friendly, friendly, multi-camera uh, comedies with a studio audience there to laugh at it. It's Netflix and they're doing it now. And one of the other things um that uh, benefits of owning my studio is that I get all the pilots that come out every year. 
and I read as many as I can. I can't say that I literally read every all of them, but <laughs> I use current lot. material. To Are teach. there a few? Uh, a few. <laughs> Are there a couple? You, the average actor would be their jaw would drop if they saw how many multicams were uh, written every year. They don't necessarily get pilots made, and they don't. And then if they do make a pilot, they don't always get picked up. But the networks have a deep passion for that format because it's so valuable. Do you think that's it's valuable because when it hits, it really hits? Yeah. It hits hard, you know. Um, Friends, after it ended, you know, Friends had a 10-year run. And that 10-year run ended more than 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yep, it sure did. Right? So it had a life in syndication, you know, which is what a lot of us grew up with. It's it's on Channel 5 or Channel Mm -hmm, 7, you know, mm -hmm. or 9, one of the oddball channels, et cetera. Uh, But then it got a whole renewed life on Netflix. And um, a couple years ago, I think it was a year and a half or so ago, and this was all written in the trades. I just, I read all the time. Uh, Netflix announced that it didn't want to renew the lease to syndicate or stream at this point Friends, right? Um, They were pummeled by subscription cancellation threats because the one show, the more than 20-year-old sitcom was going to come down and people said, I, I literally go to bed with friends every night playing in the background. If you're getting rid of friends, that's the only reason I have a Netflix subscription. To the point that they ponied up another, I won't remember the number, so I won't say it, but an insane amount of money. And the actors and the writers had back-end deals. So this ancient show is paying Pain. off <laughs> like a jackpot decades later, later yeah. not months or years, yeah. decades in a way that's unimaginable. That payout that they all got from that last buyout was more money than most people will ever make in their lifetime. And that was after all of it. All the other money. <laughs> right. And, you know, same for Seinfeld, I believe, on Hulu. That payout was enormous. Um I love talking about the money comedy makes. I love it because people forget and they don't know how valuable it is. And then just to follow that friends chain, ultimately Warner Brothers is now, Warner Media is opening its own streaming service and they own friends. So they actually pulled it from Netflix. So when it's, when they're done with whatever run they have this time, they can't get it back in literally in the headline because Warner Brothers owns, Warner Media owns HBO as well. So in the trades, this was just a few months ago this year. It was like Warner, you know, uh, Warner Media announcing its own streaming service. So you can pay a fee and get whatever Warner Brothers owns. It mentioned two things in the headline in variety. Because we own, if you want to watch Game of Thrones or Friends, you're going to have <laughs> you're to gonna have to subscribe to this. Right. Yeah. And I was like, wow, Game of Thrones, the most Emmy Award winning drama ever Ever. produced in television history Mm -hmm. and a sitcom we all like. Right? (laughs) That we we go to bed too. So when people poo-poo on sitcoms, send them to Gunner because I (laughs) want to talk to you about it. So I had one more quick question. I know that we just keep asking you questions. Um, But uh, how do you think things that are happening in the world, our political environment, all of that, how much do you think that affects the amount of comedies that get made? I 
don't think it affects the amount of comedies that get made. It's uh, it's tricky to bring politics into comedy. Um, I'll answer it this way. You know, Veep was an exercise in sheer genius because it was a satire and parody of our political culture, and it was so smartly written. And the edgier you get, in my opinion, the smarter you need to be. Uh, and the whole team behind that production was brilliant, and it addressed what was going on culturally, pol politically. Um, I am heartbroken that Roseanne Barr unfortunately brought the demise of the return of Roseanne because th the first few episodes before uh, she imploded on Twitter and brought the show down, well, they, re they recreated the show. It's called The Connors, and it is still on. So yeah. credit where credit is due. But that show was poised to be an exercise also in brilliance. Uh, in terms of a middle-class family. So, you know, Veep is in Washington, D.C., and it's dealing with people at the upper levels of government, and great, it is what it is, I love it. Uh, but Roseanne was a middle-class family, and it was a blue-collar family that we all got to know and love, and if she could have just kept her mouth shut and kept her personal politics hidden, the show itself, separating her from the product, it had John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf as well. Right. I mean, some of the best American actors we have on a sitcom and it was setting itself up to take on the current political climate we have in a well-rounded way, exercising voices from both sides of the political spectrum. And it truly, I was rooting for it. It debuted to more than 18 million people, something a network comedy hadn't done in eons. So people were into it. They liked it, even if we were still fighting and clashing. At least there was a conversation going. But the show was as good as it ever was in the beginning. Mm. And it was super freaking current. And unfortunately, she said something that was her undoing. And the show got reinvented. And I just... I wish them all well because, you know, I love Sarah Gilbert and John Goodman, everybody else that's still on the Connors, but without her, it just wasn't the same show and it doesn't have the same numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like for me in the sense of like, I really need the comedy when I'm, when it, when things are so crazy in life. Do you oh. know what I mean? Like I need that release of like, I don't want to watch a serious drama when the turmoil of the world is happening. I'm like, like House of Cards was really hard to watch after our last election. Yeah. I couldn't <laughs> like know? certain, certain shows. I just like couldn't it was dive. Too, I, yeah. Too I couldn't dive into. To... I'm going to be, I don't know if this is cynical or not. I, I, so I maybe heard it the wrong way, but I get what you're asking now. Um, oh, it's totally fine. I enjoyed your answer that you had. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, I, yeah. And I get what you're saying. You know, at certain times of life, it's kind of like we all need to laugh. And we've all, a lot of us have said that. And I certainly know the feeling. Um, these are produced by networks and giant corporations. And I think they make what makes them money. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> so the, so yeah. do you take that into your writing and when you're teaching writing? Like, how much do you think about those? I mean, they're choosing what will make them money. Like, how much do you think about that in your... Also a great question. I, You know, I present uh, as much as I can as an instructor. I review the current climate. 
because I think that's relevant, right? And so I just present to my students what the options are. I unpack them as best as I can and then with examples so it's not abstract. Mm -hmm. So in other words, to answer your question, I would say Veep was here. And then I would also say Mr. Iglesias is here on Netflix. <laughs> They're both half-hour comedies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One's kind of very family-friendly and probably with a huge nod to children and et cetera, and a lot of the things that I've said. And then there are comedies, you know, some of the best written half-hour comedies right now are on Nickelodeon. It's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know what you grew up with, but, you know, we, uh, people of my generation had, like, weird stuff, like H.R. Puffin stuff and Sigmund and the Sea Monsters and, like, these are kind of like, what is, you're like, and, and just Saturday morning cartoons yeah. that were, by the way, very adult and had very mature themes in a lot of yep. ways. And you were like, were these people, like, on LSD? Oh, right. definitely. <laughs> we're on some sort of And drugs. then when you got older, they were, you were like, oh. They were on LSD. Yeah. <laughs> LSD. Well, some of those Nickelodeon shows, I wouldn't say that, but they're a lot more ribald and rowdy and suggestive and filled with double entendres more than people think. So I think a lot of the really smart comedy writers are on those shows. In fact, I know they were because when all the multicams shuttered in the 90s, um, that's where they went because there weren't a lot of comedy writing jobs for a while. So those shows are smarter than most people think. Mm. Which is good for the parents who have to watch them, right? <laughs> yes, because there are laughs for everyone. Yeah, that's um, important. Oh my gosh! Well, you're like a, a master class in comedy. It's been so lovely, like sitting here and talking to you. Thank you, you for giving us your time. Yes. Um, where can people find you and the studio online? Uh, they can find me in the studio at www.actorscomedystudio.com. And then we've also additionally opened the self-tape place, www.theselftapeplace.com, <laughs> which is actor taping, but also coaching. So it's run literally by myself and my business partner, Lauren, and anybody. I just want to say this because I know there's a lot of self-taping options too, but it's become standard and we've put the thought and care into our self-tape operation that we have put into our school. So it, you know that you're going to be taken care of. And if you want a coach to actually help you with the performance, aside from the taping, you're going to get people who teach every day for a living, not just you know someone who maybe doesn't know. Uh, so that's where you can find me. We're on Beverly Boulevard in the middle of the city by CBS Television Studios <laughs> over on between Fairfax and La Brea. So it's in the middle of everything, I like Wonderful. to say. Wonderful. Right? That's great. Yes. Well, thank you again so much. Yes. We really appreciate you taking time to sit with us. It was a joy talking to you, too. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.